Thank you. Philippians chapter 3. The next few weeks, we are going to have the privilege of diving in together into the gospel. And I love the gospel. And I am so thrilled to finally make it to chapter 3. I believe that the entire book of Philippians is magnificent, but I believe chapter 3 soars in its magnificence. I believe that Paul, as he comes to chapter 3, and as he has covered so much ground so far, remember why Paul is writing these things. He's writing to create unity, to try and fight for unity. He's writing for joy, for the purpose of instilling joy in the congregation. But he knows, as we do, and as one pastor says, preaching on unity does not unify a church. Preaching Jesus unifies the church. And here Paul begins, as he already has, but in a new way, in a deeper way, in an incredibly profound way, to preach Jesus to the Philippians and to us as well. We are going to take our time through verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 3, and what he addresses here simply makes my soul soar. I, I've been looking forward to these verses and diving in with them, or with you in them, because they put on display the love of Jesus Christ for sinners like me and you. They put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what better timing? We're going to deal with this issue for the next couple weeks, and we're going to celebrate Easter, which is really the, the entire affirmation of everything that we are going to be discussing in these verses. And then we get to continue back in these verses after Easter and just stare at the gospel. Let's stare at it together by way of introduction for our time this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Because we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Because I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But... Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I, 
may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you had to summarize these 11 verses in just one word, if you had to give these verses a theme, what would that one word theme be? You could say the gospel, you could say the love of Jesus, although that's not one word. If I had to give it one word, the theme of these verses is very clearly justification. Justification. Some of you, when I say that word, you know exactly what it means. Uh, You know so well, you could come up and teach it in my place. Some of you might know the word, but you might have a misunderstanding as to what it truly is. You know it, you know it's a part of Christianese speak, it's a very weighty doctrine, but maybe you're a little confused about certain aspects of the doctrine of justification. And maybe some of you have never even heard that word before. Regardless of where you stand on your understanding of that word, I pray that you will find two things very quickly taking place in your soul over the next few weeks. Number one, I pray that you would be utterly humbled by the love of God. There is no one more amazing than our God. Justification puts on display the love of the creator God of the universe for you and me, sinners condemned to die because of our sin. So totally insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But to God, these verses remind us of the significant insignificance that we have before our Creator. As John Calvin said, firstly, secondly, thirdly, and forever, humility. Humility is the byproduct of an understanding of justification. If you are prideful then you struggle to fully understand the implications of the doctrine of justification. Secondly, my prayer, not only is that we would all be humbled as Christ Bible Church, but that we would be filled with joy. And I'm not talking about happiness that's dependent on our circumstances. I am talking about true, biblical, doctrine-rooted and doctrine-founded joy. As uh, one pastor says, Joy is the byproduct of understanding true doctrine. Joy is the byproduct. In fact, we're going to see that this morning. I want us to be filled with joy, and I want us to be humbled to the ground. And I think both can happen at the exact same time as we stare at the doctrine of justification. What is justification? By way of introducing these verses to us, we need to spend a little bit of time dealing with the concept, the biblical doctrine of justification What is it? Why is it important? Is it important? One writer says, There is no subject which possesses more intrinsic importance than attaches to this one. So that author would say this is intensely, immensely important. Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, says, The very hinge and pillar of Christianity is justification. To be wrong in this one truth is to have a defect in the foundation whereby everything that has been built upon will topple to its destruction. Thomas Watson would say this is vitally important. Calvin says the main hinge on which our salvation turns is that of justification. You say, well, those are all dead people. Well, there are some other more contemporary people that have had said the same exact thing. John Stott says, nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand the concept of justification. And Jim Boyce said, there is nothing in all life and history that is more important 
than the teaching of justification. Let's go back to one other most famous dead guy that we learned about in our church history in the Family Bible Hour, Martin Luther. He says this, The doctrine of justification is the head and cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot last for one hour. This is the article on which the church either stands or falls. Notice how he lays out the entirety of the church. Justification begets the church. It it begins it. It nourishes the church. It builds the church. It preserves the church. And it defends the church. Justification is vitally important. If we do not understand the doctrine of justification, if we do not understand it rightly, if we cannot ourselves articulate it, then we might have a misunderstanding of the very gospel itself because, and I do not believe this is an overstatement, I think if the Apostle Paul were here, he would say the exact same things in these verses and in the entire book of Romans. The gospel is justification. The gospel of Jesus Christ is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Why even a question about justification? Why deal with this issue of being just? Why does that matter? We all know that we struggle, we sin, we all know we have fallen short of the glory of God. Why even deal with this issue? Job chapter 25 verse 4 says this, how can a man be just with God? How can he be clean or pure who is born of a woman? Job 4 verse 17, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? This is the question that every single human heart will wrestle with. Because every single human heart knows two things. Every single, whether believing or non-believing human heart, every single human heart knows two things that have been printed there by God himself. Number one, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that every single human being knows that eternity exists after they die. Every single human knows something happens after they die. They know that. Whether they suppress that truth or not is up to them, but they know that. That wouldn't be too terrifying. In fact, that would be exciting to know that this isn't the only life there is, other than the fact that every single human heart also knows from Romans 2.15 that the law has been imprinted on their heart and they are sinners before God. They have all broken the law. So now, the prospect of eternity is a fearful one, knowing that you have violated the law of him whom you will stand before on that last day when you enter into eternity. So, every single religion in the entire world is built and made and formed to answer the question that was posed to Job. How can we be just? How can we be right before God? Everybody knows that we're not right before God. Everybody has the law imprinted on their conscience, imprinted on their heart. Romans 2.15 tells us that very clearly. So we all know that we have done things that have violated the commandment of God. So now the question is, what do we do? How can we be right before God? Every religion answers this question with the exact same answer. Yes, we can be right before God, and it's by your works. It's by things that you have to do. 
whether you have to pray a certain prayer, whether you have to take a certain trip, whatever it might be, every single religion in the entire world deals with this question, can we be right before God? By saying, yes, you can, and you have to do it based on what you can do. You have to work, and if you work, you can gain a right standing before God. Uh, Over the last couple weeks, God has given me the privilege of sharing the gospel with two pairs of Mormons, and they have stopped by our house the first time right when we sat down to dinner, so we invited them in to eat dinner with us, the second time when I was working on the yard, and uh, I invited them to come in, hang out for a couple hours, and talk the Bible, and talk about Jesus. And if you boil down the issue that we need to discuss, and here's my favorite question from Ray Comfort, and I use this with every single religion, and it's just the best question. If I were shot or were in the middle of a car accident and I was bleeding on the side of the road with only two minutes to live, I'm bleeding to death, I have two minutes to live, and you come stand over my dying body and I plead with you, how can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? What would your answer be? That boils it down. That's gospel. How can I get to heaven? Every religion, whether it's JW, whether it's cults like that, whether it's Mormons, they say, well, you have to be baptized by an authorized Mormon priest and official. Well, I can't. I'm on the side of the road. I'm bleeding to death. I can't move. Well, God will have mercy on your soul. That's no hope. And that's not what my God says. The Jesus that I follow told a thief nailed to a cross who couldn't do anything, today you will be with me in paradise. How could he say that? Based on nothing that thief could do, he's pinned to a cross, and with his dying breath, he says, please remember me. You are innocent. We deserve the punishment we are getting. You are innocent. Please remember me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was nailed to that cross, a sinner condemned to die, condemned to go to hell for his sins, and died on that cross, a repentant And we'll meet him in heaven one day. Every religion answers this question. How can we be right before God? By saying, you can be. There is hope and you must do something. The Bible answers this question in a way no other religion does. The Bible is the only book or place or thing that teaches, yes, you can have a right standing before God, but it is not based on anything you can do. In fact, the Bible teaches if you try to do something, To earn a right standing before God, you undo grace, you undo faith, and therefore you are not saved. As one writer says, a pastor named Jared Wilson, the gospel explodes our moral categories. In Jesus' view, there aren't good people and bad people. There's him and everyone else. A lot of people in religion, a lot of religious people think, I can do good things. I can be a good person. Maybe God will grade on a curve and I'll be high enough that I'll get into heaven. I I can do something. Only the Bible says, yes, there is hope. You can have a right standing before God. But it is not through anything you can do. If I can give you a definition for justification, it would be this. Justification, very simply, if you want to write a two-word definition, it's um, a three-word, declaring not guilty. Um, justification is a declaration by God that he declares you not guilty. 
if I could say it in a little bit more of an expanded form, justification teaches that God declares sinners not guilty, not on the basis of anything they have done, but only on the basis of what Christ has done. We are justified, we are declared not guilty by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. You know that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and those things, the grace that God has given to you, and the faith that God has given you to you to believe, are not of yourselves. It's not a result of works, lest any man should boast. You and I cannot attain a good, right, just standing before God on our own merits. Not only this, justification also teaches that God not only declares you not guilty, but he declares you perfectly righteous. How does this work? How does this happen? How can this be? Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. How can God simply look at sinners like me and like you and say, you are not guilty, in fact, you are perfectly righteous? If someone is on trial for murder and the judge just looks and says, you know what, I feel happy today, I feel compassionate, go ahead, you can go free, I declare you not guilty. People might say, man, that's a loving judge. No, that judge should be condemned himself. As a bad, wicked, evil judge, even the book of Proverbs declares that, that anyone who gives a verdict that is unjust is themselves unjust. So is God unjust by saying, yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you are condemned to die and go to hell, but you're not guilty. How can this happen? Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for they have all sinned and have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. But we can be justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his wrath. In his blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. No, God is not unjust when he declares sinners like you and like me uh, not guilty. He is righteous, and he is demonstrating his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and would be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus So how can God be just when he stares at sinners like you and me and says, you are not guilty? He can do it because he is staring at the righteousness of another. Those who place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone, they have the entire goodness of Jesus, the obedient life that Jesus lived, placed into their account. And they have all of their disobedience, all of their sin placed upon Jesus at the moment of his death so that the wrath of God against your sin and my sin is poured out on Jesus on the cross, done away with it in its entirety. It is finished at the cross. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, he offers us the free gift of eternal life and the perfect obedience of a life that you and I could never live. 
In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great exchange, the great transaction. How does it take place? We've all sinned, verse 23, you know that verse. But we can be justified, there's our word. We can be declared righteous, declared not guilty. And we can be justified as a gift. I love that word. There's a place where it's used in the New Testament. That Greek word is used in the um, gospel records. And it speaks of Jesus when he says that he has been hated by the religious leaders without a cause. They hated him without a cause. So stick that there in your Bible. Being justified without a cause. You and I can do nothing to earn justification. You and I can do nothing to gain righteousness. We are justified without a cause of our own doing. We are justified totally with a cause of God's own doing. Why? Because we have redemption through Jesus Christ. He died. God displayed him publicly. And the wrath that was in store for your sin and mine was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And his perfect righteousness, uh, as God placed all of our sin upon his body, the wrath of God was satisfied in his death. So he is just. God is just. He is not saying you can go free. He is saying you are not guilty. You are innocent. You are righteous. You have done everything perfect because, not because of anything you can do, but because of Jesus Christ. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death that you deserve. And if you would place your faith in Jesus alone, you will have eternal life. Back in Philippians chapter 3, Verse 9, it's my favorite verse, actually, uh, dealing with the gospel. I know John 3.16 is a great verse, but I think this verse clarifies what the gospel is. I want to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, because as Romans 3, verse 20 says, by the law, no man can be justified. You and I cannot be made right by the things we do. And so Paul says, I want to be found in Jesus, not found by myself, having a righteousness of my own. I want to have a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. It's not mine. It's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of another, and it comes not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of my faith. I love that verse. That's my favorite verse in sharing the gospel with people. Now, Some people can say, well, if I just have to have faith and believe, then it doesn't matter if I do anything. And there is a certain essence to uh, a truth to that statement. Um, Paul anticipates this even in Romans 6. One pastor said it to me, "Uh, Patrick, if you don't share the gospel in a way that somebody then turns to you and says, so I can just keep on sinning, then maybe you haven't shared the gospel explicitly enough. Because in Romans 6, after Paul has shared the whole gospel, Romans 6 He anticipates the question. So we just keep on sinning so grace can abound. We don't have to do anything. No. If we have died with Jesus Christ, we can no longer live in sin. Now we work. But we only work once we are saved. We never work to be saved. Tim Keller says it this way. A Christian is one who stops working to be saved, not one who stops working. You and I continue to work. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we don't work for it. Even Paul's going to say that in verse uh, 12 
of chapter 3. He says, I haven't obtained perfection yet. I'm not glorified yet. And I strain on, I press on to lay hold of that which Jesus already laid hold of me. I can run because I know I'm secure in his arms. I can press on because Christ has already made me his own. So, after that being a little bit of an introduction to justification, let's look at the way this practically plays itself out. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. And by way of an outline, I'm just going to give you two C's. Two C's. We're going to look at two aspects in these three verses. We're going to look first at the commands, and then we're going to look at the characteristics of those who live out these commands. We're going to look at two commands that Paul gives to believers, and then we're going to look at three characteristics of those believers who live out those two commands. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Paul starts by saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He starts by saying, finally, and uh, I love this word because it, it's uh, near and dear to a preacher's heart because I think probably every sermon I will say, in conclusion, when I'm only halfway done, and then I just keep on preaching for another 30 minutes. Um, though that would be a really fun way to look at this verse, that, that word finally doesn't mean in conclusion, and then he keeps on going for another half of the book. He's not saying wrapping it up. What he is saying, and this word in the Greek is translated more often than finally, it's translated the rest. So here's some over here, and here's the rest. We could translate it, the rest of what I have to say, brethren. The rest of what I have to say. I've already said a lot, but there's something else. There's another motivation I have for writing, and I haven't gotten to it yet, and I'm going to say it now. It's a huge transition. I've already talked about unity. I've already talked about joy. I've already talked about the gospel because I'm saying it again. But it's not, let me just wrap up here. It's the rest of what I have to say. There's something crucial that he wants to get to. And now he's going to get to it. He says, finally, my brethren. Note he's talking to believers about the gospel. One of the biggest misconceptions about the gospel is that you begin your Christian life and you begin your Christian walk with the gospel and then you move on. The gospel is A, B, and C. And other things are H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. I have a daughter who is learning the alphabet, so that can just roll right off my lips. The gospel is not the A, B, C's. The gospel is A through Z. He's talking to believers about the gospel. He is, in a very real sense, evangelizing believers. The gospel is not just for non-believers. In fact, the gospel is more for believers than non-believers because non-believers reject the gospel in turn and they're done. When believers receive the gospel, bow the knee to the gospel, accept the good news of Jesus Christ, then they continue in it for the rest of their lives. So the gospel is more for believers than non-believers. And he says, finally, my brother, in first command, rejoice. Imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. Almost every single time that you see that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, in the New Testament, it's usually, almost every time, coupled with a reason to rejoice. It's not just some ethereal, like, chill out in Jesus, man. You know, just enjoy Jesus. There's a reason why. Paul is going to give us a motivation, and you can guess what the motivation is. It's justification. 
rejoice in the Lord as opposed to rejoicing in your own good works, in your own righteousness. Rejoice in the righteousness of another. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. He's already written these truths about the gospel and about justification in Philippians already. He's already written it in other letters as well. He wrote extensively on it in the book of Galatians, in the letter of Galatians, which was probably his first letter. He already wrote extensively on do not stray from the gospel. And that's really, in essence, what he's going to say here. And that's why he says it's a safeguard for you. Um, that word it has an idea of holding you back from something that will destroy you. The best picture that I can come up with is driving a big bear those guardrails on the side of the mountain. I've always wondered if those things would actually work, but I'm never going to try it out. What are they there for? If you swerve off of the path, off of, off of the place you're supposed to be, it will keep you from falling off the mountain, or so they say. It'll keep you from your death. It'll save you. And so he says, brethren, to evangelize you, believers again, is to just further set up that guardrail. Because the moment that we come to Jesus by faith is the moment that every single thing in our lives will pull and, and push us to claim autonomy and say, I can do this on my own. We need a safeguard from that. We need a safeguard from running back to works righteousness. We need a safeguard from running back to, I can offer God things that I can do, especially as we live out the Christian life. Because once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, then we start living out sanctification. But our sanctification, becoming more holy, the process by which we are made more holy, we can't stand before God on the last day and say, look, I became more holy, so I deserve to be in heaven. So often I find that believers flip sanctification and justification. Okay, I need to stop sinning and start obeying. And if I stop sinning and start obeying sanctification, then one day I will be able to be righteous before God. No, you can do nothing to become righteous before God. And until you come to an end of yourself and say, I give up, I can do nothing, then you will always be trying to prove to God you are worthy. Even when we get saved in our sanctification, so often we look at ourselves and say, man, I'm growing. I haven't struggled with that thing in three weeks. See, God, you picked somebody good to be on your team. Nothing we ever do will present us before God on our own merits, on our own just deservings as righteous. So Paul says this is a safeguard for you. Rejoice. That's command number one. Command number two is beware Verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul says you must rejoice, and in that command, it will prove that you are a justified person. I love, Tim Keller says it that way, joy is a great marker of a justified person. And then when you are clinging to your justification, there are going to be people that are going to tell you, oh, you need to do things, you need to add to it. Yes, it's by grace, as the Mormons would tell you. It is by grace, but then you need to be baptized. And you need to be baptized by a Mormon authorized priest. And if you're not, then you're not going to heaven. 
There are people that are going to want to add to your justification. So beware of them. First, rejoice. Second, beware. And Paul says three things. He calls these people dogs. He calls them evil workers. And he calls them the false circumcision. It isn't that those are three groups of people. Those are just three ways to describe the same group of people. And who are these people that he's speaking of specifically? Uh, You could write in there the Judaizers. Um, Acts chapter 15 details the Judaizers who say, yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we can do nothing to earn his favor. But once we are saved, we need to be circumcised. And if you aren't circumcised, then you cannot be saved. Remember, even Peter fell into this trap. In Galatians, he fell into the trap of reverting back to works righteousness. And he did that with Judaizers that are struggling to see it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, and nothing that you can do. So Paul says, beware of these men, beware of these women, beware of these people, the Judaizers. He calls them dogs, which is a very ironic term because dogs, um, it's not that they will kill you with their kisses. That's not what he's speaking of here. He's talking about Uh, You can picture like a hyena or like a a mangy mutt. He's talking about scavengers. Uh, I said this in my class the other day. I was saying how uh, you can think of dogs as vultures. And um, somebody said, but but Patrick, dogs aren't vultures. They're birds. Like vultures are birds, not dogs. I said, no, no, scavengers. Think of just preying on people. Think of waiting for death and dying and decaying flesh. They're eating dead things. They're unclean, and so the Jews did not like dogs. In fact, they would call their enemies dogs. And here's the irony in what Paul is saying. The reference to dogs is a reference to those who do not know Jesus Christ and could not know God, have no relationship with God whatsoever. And Paul says, you who think you are working to gain a relationship with Jesus, you have no relationship. You're a dog. You're an evil worker. That's pretty straightforward. You're evil and you're working, but notice the word workers. You are working. Judaizers thought, look, we need Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins, but we also need to add to it. And that is evil. That is evil. They are workers. And they are the false circumcision. Literally, the word is the mutilation Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. This word would have, again, with irony in it, rung true in their souls as they, as they heard, as the Judaizers heard, you are dogs. You who think you have a right standing before God based on what you are doing, you actually are separated from him. You are an evil worker. You think your works earn you a right standing before God, and they're actually evil separating you from God, and you are mutilating your flesh. The very act of circumcision that they thought would bring them closer to God and allow them to be saved. Paul refers to it with a word that was used back in 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember on Mount Carmel? Remember when the prophets of Baal, what did they do to their flesh? What did they do to try and prove to their God, love me, do what I'm asking you to do? They would mutilate their flesh. And so Paul says, you're doing that. You think that the work of circumcision is bringing you closer to God? It's just like a pagan ritual 
of mutilating your flesh to try and earn God's favor to look upon you with grace. He says, no, you need to beware. You need to beware. Rejoice, command number one. Beware, command number two, because there's always going to be somebody around you who is trying to add works to justification. And the second you add a work to justification is the second it explodes. It dissipates and it is gone. Again, this does not mean that you don't struggle with that or we can't struggle with that from time to time. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we need the safeguards. Because we're constantly, we are so, we're all born. Can we just humbly admit that we're all born with two deficiencies in our character? We are naturally born prideful, wanting to say, look what I did. And we do that with each other and we do that with God. Look what I did, God. Can I get an amen from God? Can I get an applause from him? And we're all born natural legalists. We're all born with the tendency to say, this is why religion just uh, shatters throughout the entire world. Because people go, well, I want to earn my righteousness. I love that idea. I can be righteous before God based on something I can do. Tell me what I can do and I'll feel better about myself. We love legalism. So Paul says, I need to write a safeguard. Number one, if you are going to safeguard yourself against adding to your justification, rejoice in your justification. Rejoice in it. And number two, be on guard. Beware of those that would tell you you need to add things to your justification. Secondly, not only the commands, but we're going to look at the characteristics of those who live out those two commands. Those who rejoice in Jesus Christ and the justification that he offers and those who are aware and um, on guard against people that would be telling them and forcing them and commanding them to add to their justification. They have three character qualities, three characteristics in verse 3 that Paul says, we're not like those who add to their righteousness, who add to their justification. Verse 3, he says, we are the true circumcision. Remember, for the Judaizer, circumcision was the thing. Like to the, uh, to the Mormon, being baptized in the Mormon church by a, an authorized priest in the Mormon religion, that's their thing. To a Judaizer, it was circumcision. If you get saved, you aren't truly saved until you're circumcised. Paul says, no, 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 that's mutilation. And then he uses this word, and it is a play on words. He says, you mutilate your flesh in verse 2, but we, we are the true circumcision. We cut around our flesh. We don't mutilate. This is genuine, and it's not physical, literal circumcision. We are the true circumcision because we cut away in our hearts that which is unrighteous, and we do not do it. God does it through us. God does it for us. God himself does it. We're the true circumcision. You see, circumcision was just a sign of a covenant. All in the Old Testament, God says, circumcise your hearts. And Paul says, believers in Christ are the true circumcision. And what do they do? Three characteristics. Number one, they worship in the Spirit of God. They worship in the Spirit of God. Literally, it's they worship by the Spirit of God. They worship according to the Spirit of God. What's the alternative? What's the opposite of worshiping by the Spirit of God? It's worshiping by your own just deservings. We worship by the Spirit of God. We only have access to worship God and to ascribe worth to His name through someone else. 
This reminds me of John chapter 4 with the woman at the well where she asks this perfect question. So we worship here in Samaria. Where do you worship? You worship in Jerusalem, in the temple? You have to worship in a place. You have to do things. You have to um, get God to notice you by where you worship, how you worship. The smoke needs to rise up. You need to sing a song. You need to pray really loudly. What do you do to worship? Paul says we don't do anything. We worship through the Spirit, by the Spirit, according to the Spirit. We don't put any confidence in who we are to go before the Lord and stand righteous before Him. We worship by the Spirit. You'll notice in these three characteristics, you'll see the Trinity very clearly. We worship by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God the Father, and we glory in Jesus Christ. We worship according to the righteousness of another, not according to our goodness. The first characteristic of those who live out the command to rejoice in the Lord and in His righteousness and are uh, on guard against the dogs and the evil workers of false circumcision is that they worship in the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit Himself, not by anything that we can offer to God. God alone gives us access through the blood of Jesus. The second characteristic is that they glory in Christ Jesus. We worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory just literally means we we boast. We boast about Jesus. Why? Because He has given us a righteousness that we could never earn. He has looked upon us with such love and favor and He says, rest. Rest. Here is my righteousness freely given. Stop working. I freely give it to you. He declares us innocent, not guilty, righteous because of anything we've done? No. Because He is magnificent in His love. What kind of love is this? This would be incredible love from a human-to-human perspective. Somebody were on death row for something they had done and I said to them, I'll take your place. I haven't committed that crime but I will die the death as if I committed that crime so you can go free. People will call me crazy. think it is kind of crazy. How much more so the God of the universe who created me to do that with me? To say, yeah, you deserve to die an eternal punishment and experience the wrath of God forever, but I'll take that wrath. Why? Anything I did to earn that or deserve that? No. Why? Because I love you. That's why we boast in Him. What is it that you love to talk about? What is always on your lips? Paul says, what's always on my lips is Jesus Christ. The righteousness of another is what I boast in. Thirdly, not only do we worship in the Spirit of God, not only do we glory in Christ Jesus, but finally, we put no confidence in the flesh. The word confidence there literally means to rely upon. We do not rely upon our flesh. For what? For eternal life? For right standing before God? Specifically, Paul is probably referring to we put no confidence in our flesh in that we are circumcised or not circumcised. Remember he talked about the dogs, the false circumcision? We don't put confidence in being circumcised or uncircumcised. That doesn't matter. But for us, and we're going to dive into this next week, What are the things that we tend to place our confidence in? 
what do we tend to rely upon? What do we tend to say, this will help me get good standing before God? Haven't missed tithing in five years. Pray for two hours every morning. I serve. I've never missed a Sunday at Christ Bible Church. I don't go to R-rated movies. The list goes on and on. And we're going to look at that list in its entirety uh, next week. Paul gives that list to say these are the things that you can hope for a good standing before God. And you can hope in these things for a good standing before God, but they cannot give you that. So we don't rely upon our flesh. We rely upon the Lord. We glory in, we boast about, and we rely upon the righteousness of another. What I want to do now is I want to obey these commands. I mean, this is just a perfect time to literally obey these commands. He says rejoice, and we are going to rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord, we are going to do that. He says rejoice in the righteousness of another, we are going to do that. But before we do, I want to ask your soul, as I've been asking my own heart for the last couple of weeks, do you try to earn God's love? Do you try to earn God's love? I think the better question, if we're honest, is where do you try to earn God's love? Another question, where do you try to keep God's love? Maybe you believe in justification, that you can do nothing to earn right standing before God. He has done it all, and all you have to do is believe in Him. But maybe you think that now, once you're saved, you are the one who is dependent on keeping God's love. As if he's in a relationship with you where if you sin, he has less love for you. If you're righteous, he has more love for you. Do you try to be good enough for God's love? This is something I hear more often than those other two. I want to be good enough for God. I've messed up in the past, but I want to be good enough for him now. I think that Paul Tripp helps us in these questions. God's love is yours forever. Not because you will be faithful, but because he is. God's love is constant, not because you earned it in your righteousness, but because God knew it was the only hope for you in your unrighteousness. God's love never wanes, even when your allegiance to him does, because it's not based on your performance, but on his character. Here's the point. If you think that God's love is at stake, that he will withdraw it when you mess up, then in your moments of failure, you will run from him and not to him. But if you really believe in your deepest moments of sinful failures, weaknesses, and rebellions, that when you run to him, he will greet you with arms of redemptive love, then it makes no sense to hide from him or to separate yourself from his care. The bottom line is this. In your struggle with sin, your love for God is never your hope. Hope is to be found only ever in His love for you. 
Every other religion says, you must do, you must do, you must do. Jesus Christ alone says, done. Father, I pray that as we rejoice, as we live out these commands, as we even safeguard ourselves through the words of these songs, that you would be pleased to work in us an awareness of our unrighteousness, that we would glory in the fact that we do have nothing to offer you. And then we would glory in the fact that Jesus is everything to us, for us, because of his great love. Be glorified as we rejoice in the righteousness of another.